When trust has been severed in a marriage because of a pornography addiction, it's a lot of work to rebuild it. But by God's grace and with proper help, it is possible. There's hope. This is the No Porn Marriage Podcast. I'm Erin Smalley, and I'm here with my husband, Dr. Greg Smalley. Greg, why is it so difficult when pornography has invaded a marriage to rebuild the trust after it's been broken? I think it's so difficult because love is risky. Love requires vulnerability. I mean, it's sort of the ultimate dilemma in marriage that in order to reach this profound level of connection and intimacy that we all crave, well, you have to then give your spouse access to the most vulnerable part of who you are, your heart. And mm. the risk is there's no guarantee then how your spouse will treat your heart. Mm -hmm. But trust leads to safety and security. And when people feel safe and secure inside their marriage, they tend to then open their hearts and intimacy and connection happens. But as things like pornography or other kinds of things that hurt your spouse takes place, well, your heart closes. When you feel unsafe, your heart will close. And then there's just going to be this natural disconnect. And over time, this drifting apart, people quit kind of working out problems when their heart is shut down. That's why for us, we've recognized how important safety is. That trust leads to safety and that creates open hearts. And that's why for me, I had to begin to understand that as I confessed my pornography problem many years ago, how that instantly made you feel unsafe. Absolutely. That broken trust created then a marriage relationship that didn't feel safe. And it took a while to really rebuild that. Absolutely. Because when trust is broken within a marriage, it's like an injury to the connection within the marriage. And of course, the connection is one of the deepest longings we have. And it, it comes from the heart. So when your heart's closed, you're not going to feel that deep connection. And so as you're on this journey, there's going to be different stages of rebuilding the trust in your marriage. And so it's important. There's a few things that are helpful amidst this journey that you're beginning. First and foremost, you know, own and accept 100% responsibility for your choices. Again, I wasn't responsible for your choices, but I, and recognizing that was helpful because so often women begin to internalize that. Thank goodness I knew because I had read so much research and worked with people who had dealt with pornography. I had no idea that I was going to be dealing with it, but I knew that this was a sin that you had been carrying. And so often we want to look at sexual sin differently than other sin. And what I know to be true is that there is no grading level of your sin is worse than mine. Granted, there are greater impacts of sexual sin on a marriage because it severs that connection. So there's a lot more at risk. However, if I was consistently lying to you about something else, well, that's going to impact the level of trust as well. So it definitely is recognizing we are entering in this journey together. Together, we are going to battle for our marriage. Together, we're going to come and support each other. I'm not responsible for your sin. You're not responsible for mine. So as we continue to each seek individual healing, then we can come together and begin healing this marriage relationship. There's so much hope around the healing that can come after sexual sin, infidelity, 
in any break in trust within a marriage relationship, there's so much hope as you begin to dig around and understand where is this coming from for each of you? What is your part in this process? As you look back kind of on our journey, as I confess to you that I had been looking at pornography, what were some of the things that really helped kind of restore the trust in our marriage? For me, it was knowing that there was safety, that you automatically put a filter on your phone. You put one on our son's phone as well. That helped me to know that you weren't taking this lightly, that this wasn't something that you were saying, oh, I'll be fine. I can handle this because clearly you couldn't handle it. So it was important to know that there were things in place to guard your mind, guard your heart in those moments of weakness. You also went to a weekend individual intensive to seek healing, not just in in this sin, but overall holistic healing and really beginning to put the pieces together of how did I get here? And that made me know that you were truly pursuing something different and something better than pornography. And as I look back on that season, I had to accept that this wasn't going to be a quick fix, that this was going to take time as much as I wanted just to be done with all this and to move on. Really looking back, I think building trust is just saying, let's take this slow and let's just move through this healing process, both as individuals and within our marriage. Well, right now we're going to hear a conversation from Nick and Michelle Stumbo of Pure Desire Ministries. Nick struggled with pornography for many years before he was set free. They do such a great job of describing how it affected their marriage. Well, here's Focus on the Family President, Jim Daly. Nick, let me kick it off. In the book, you mentioned something about the gift of pain, that you believe this ended up being a real positive thing the way you're describing it, but you called it the gift of pain from God. Now, we Westerners aren't used to putting it in that context. Yeah, it was uh, in 2010, so we'd been married for 10 years at that point, and in my pattern of confession to her, which was happening, you know, once or twice a year where I'd get up the courage and feel guilty enough, I would kind of share that things were still happening. Um, And I would always uh, excuse or minimize my behavior to say, it's not about you. You know, this has been in my life long before I met you. So it's not a reaction to your beauty or lack of sex. Things are great there. And so I would say it to her to say, if you only understood, you wouldn't be angry or upset because it's not about you. Hmm. And the, the gift of pain was on this time in 2010 when I had relapsed as I imagined myself needing to tell her yet again that I'd crossed those lines. The pain I was, I was feeling wasn't my pain. It wasn't like, man, she's going to be mad and you have to go through this again. I think it was for the first time I could see in advance the pain it was going to cause her. Um, and it was heartbreaking to realize I would do this to someone I care about so much. And I, I could feel the way it was going to make her feel because we'd been through this enough times that I I could hear the words she was going to say, and, and I was feeling her pain. And I think that's what really opened my eyes to say, this is uh, a major issue that I have to address. I can't just keep excusing it to say, oh, it's getting better. I'm working on it. Like, if I'm causing someone I love this much pain, I've got to be willing to do whatever it takes to stop it. What year was this in your marriage? Uh, uh, year 10. So this is year 10. I mean, think of that battle. And this is when you first become empathetic. To Michelle's heart, yeah. Um, some people go, "Wow, are you dense? What happened there?" Well, addiction but, dials. But down I appreciate the fact that you got there. Yeah. Let's look at the positive side yeah. of it. But answer both of those kind of emotional responses. 
Yeah, you know, really when we're involved in any behavior, again, whether it's pornography or a food addiction or drug, it's actually a way of kind of numbing our emotions. And you can't dial down one emotion in your life. So if if you're feeling lots of shame and rejection and fear and so you're acting out to kind of numb those emotions, then you're also dialing down the emotions, the healthy ones that you need for a good marriage. And so I think what I was seeing in my life is what we see for so many men and women that struggle in this area is they don't have much empathy. And again, that's why I think of it as such a gift from God, because somehow by his Holy Spirit that night in 2010, he just he broke through and I, I felt things I'd never felt before that, yeah. that someone listening might think, well, why didn't you feel that every time? And I would say, I, I don't know. I wish I had. Yeah, that's Because we probably could have. Um, launched onto this journey of healing a lot sooner. Well, and Michelle, I, you know, turning to you, you got tears in your eyes, you're <laughs> welling up. And that's a good thing. It's okay because, you know, a lot of women are in your corner reliving this, thinking, what was going on? Why were you putting up with this? What, you know, what was happening for you emotionally? I love this man and he's a great dad and he's an amazing pastor. And I just didn't know why God wasn't freeing him from this struggle. You know, that was my prayer. Like, God, we're both wanting out of this. Like, why aren't you helping him? He's doing everything we knew what to do. Well, and at this point, you had had enough. And at 10, yeah. So at this point, he'd called me. And I think for every woman, there's a breaking point. Like you, you know, try to fix him. You try to get counseling or whatever. You try to make it work. But then there's like this breaking point of this is going to be my forever. Am I okay with that or not? And huh. then you either stay or you leave. There's like this heart connection that just kind of breaks, I guess. What, let me ask you, because again, I so appreciate your transparency. It's, it's refreshing. It's so healthy. But what did it feel like? I mean, to know that Nick was, you know, coming back to you a couple times a year saying, you know, I blew it. I looked at things. I saw things. However, that was expressed. Yeah. I mean, it as was, a woman, what did it feel like? It, it felt like, um, like knife cuts, like where, you know, he'd like hurt you and like you're bleeding out and like it, then they'd heal and there, but there was a scar left, huh. but there were, that was just over and over and over. And there wasn't much life left at the end of 10 years to give back, to keep working. So my, I'd kind of decided like, okay, I'm going to figure out how to move to where my parents were, live with them. and So you began that, to think of your escape plan. To think, yeah. yeah, and then I was like, well, well, that's not fair to the kids. I can't, you know, take their dad away from them. So when the kids are gone, I'm out. <laughs> well, and I know every time I'd confess, you would tell them, me that it made you feel like you weren't good enough, like you had to compare to these images. Right. And even though I would say it's not about you, right. that wasn't your reality. Well, and that was the reality. point there because it, that was the feeling question I had. Because even right. though Nick may have been saying that, Right. You had to feel oh, yeah, I fill felt in the blank. Inadequate, not enough. Not yeah. enough. Why am I not enough? I don't understand why I'm not enough. Because it from him it was separate. For me it wasn't because for I think for a woman, in order to do the acts that men do to their wives, we would have to hate them to do those things. But for men it's it's so separate. It's not we compartmentalize. It's not yeah. because there's it, they almost it's not even about you. But for us it's like how could it not be about me? Because I remember sitting in churches where speakers would come up and say, oh, I'm freed. And I'm sitting there thinking, well, why aren't we freed? We're doing yeah. all those things too. <laughs> right. You well, know, like, it's a fair question. So. 
And the important thing is that our journey of freedom wasn't just about how to stop the behavior. That's what we realized in our right. our year-long healing process that you know continued beyond the year, that it wasn't about changing the behavior. It was about changing the way you do life. And when you do that and you start to get into, you know, for me, what are the, these core issues that are driving me? How am I dealing with shame? What do I believe about God and myself? The way that opened up conversations in our marriage, not just about pornography or sex, but about what did we believe about ourselves? What did we learn from our families of origin? What were the wounds that we were bringing in that, that I'm treating you in a way because of how my dad treated me? And, and we don't even see that we're doing it. And then all of a sudden, it's like our eyes are open to how all of these things contribute. So I, I say in our, our healing journey that we had conversations we'd never had before. Not that we didn't want to. We just didn't even know how to have them. Mm-hmm. And it connected us emotionally, spiritually, sexually as a couple in ways I don't know how else we would have gotten there. So we do look back and say we're, we're so grateful for that pain and that journey because of what it brought us to. And that's a powerful realization when really for the first time you get the pain that you've caused your spouse. Really that type of humility, that kind of empathy that Nick and Michelle are talking about is such an important part of rebuilding the trust in your marriage. I know for me, Aaron, as I began to share kind of my own struggle, as I dealt with pornography, it was so hard to tell you that because one, I mean, I just, I hated the fact that I'd hurt you, that I disappointed you, that I'd made a mistake, that maybe I wasn't the man that you thought I was. I mean, all those thoughts were running in my mind. And I know that there were many times when you tried to have an ongoing discussion about me viewing pornography that I would shut you down. Mm-hmm. I hated to have the ongoing. It was kind of like, hey, I shared it. We talked about it. Let's move on. And it was so hard for me. But I know that this kind of defensiveness really hurts the whole healing process. Absolutely. It's so important that you allow your spouse as much time as they need. I love in my office when I hear a man who has confessed to pornography use or infidelity or a woman who has done that. I love when I hear them say, you know what? I'm going to listen to you for as long as you need. And that's when I know that humility has set into their heart because it that's humbling to say, I'm going to keep listening to you, even though I don't want to. I want to get angry every time you bring this up because it just reminds me of the sinful choices I made and the shame probably rises up. The guilt rises up. But just recognizing attending to your own heart is key in those moments. And that's exactly what I had to learn. And now looking back that I wasn't good at was when you would want to talk about this, it took me to such a bad place that I didn't know how to manage my own Mm -hmm. emotions. And Mm -hmm. so I tried to shut you down or I would try to say, Hey, how about, um, saying some good things about me as well? Like, (laughs) do you notice all the good things that I'm doing? No. (laughs) (laughs) Because women, we focus on what you're not doing. (laughs) Yeah. Now we're going to counseling again. Yeah. But I recognize, though, that I was trying to make you be responsible for my feelings. And a big part of what I started to learn in counseling was, no, that's my job, my feelings. So the more that I could, in those moments, actually state to you that I know you want to talk about this, but it makes me feel so failed mm-hmm. that something about just saying that out loud really helped me kind of get grounded 
because then you would kind of show up a little bit differently, but it also gave me a moment to then turn to the Lord and say, God, right now I do feel failed, Mm -hmm. but I want to be there for my wife. I want to have the humility and the empathy that the stumbos are talking about. Mm -hmm. Help me, you know, help me get there. Yeah. It's such a different conversation when you talk about those underlying emotions and what really is going on. So to hear you say, gosh, when we talk about this, I feel like such a failure. And I mean, then I could be compassionate with you because, of course, I didn't see you as a failure. You had made a mistake and that I wasn't defining you as that, but you were. Right. And so knowing that that was key for me to really step into the place of empathy and compassion. And, you know, just to differentiate, sympathy is when you feel sorry for someone. Empathy is when you feel sorry with someone. And so there's something very different about entering into this together and really allowing yourself to feel what the other person is experiencing. And I'm telling you, it's life-changing. And I've seen it again and again in my office. There's one young man who comes to mind who confessed to a whole lot of secret sin. And I can tell you months later, that young man is a different person than the guy I met who walked through my office door. And the greatest thing is when his wife just looks at him and goes, you are totally different. I don't even know what to say. And it's just, it just puts a smile on my face because they walked the hard road and they have a marriage that is beginning to rebuild in a way that it never would have if they hadn't gone through the pain, but then also through the pain of confession and the pain of beginning this rebuilding process. It's powerful. And that's the power of empathy. Well, let's go back to the conversation that Jim Daly had with the Stumbos as they talk about how they rebuilt that sacred trust that's so important for a great marriage. Hey, let's get to the bow of the story because it's so beautiful. Ten years, we've gotten to that point, all the angst, and I appreciate, again, your vulnerability to share that. Let's talk about how the Lord tied this together when you did make that final decision to say it's done both of your reactions, the role that Pure Desire Ministries played in that regard, the one you now lead and took over from, I think, the founder. Yeah. <laughs> uh, just describe that for us and the fact that you're in a much better place now. You're helping hundreds, if not thousands, of people with this uh, sexual addiction problem. Tell us what happened. Yeah. Um, admittedly, I, I still was so minimizing, I didn't think I needed it. But Michelle heard those same words of invitation to get help, and she knew we did. And so I took this intermediate step to go meet with a a counselor friend in our district um, who asked me really three life-changing questions. Because I said, I don't think I need – I just need a little bit of tips how to avoid pornography. But he said, Nick, let's think about this. Number one, how long has this been in your life? Wow. So by that time, it had been over 15 years. Yeah. He said, okay, number two, how many times have you tried to stop? And I actually chuckled because I said, well, every time has been the last time. So I've tried to stop literally hundreds, if not thousands of times. Right. And he said, okay, and is it causing you or people you care about significant amounts of pain? And I said, well, yeah, I believe if I don't change, my wife will leave me. And he said, well, put that together, Nick. It's been a problem for a while. You've tried repeatedly to stop and can't, even though it's causing you or people you love pain. I said, yeah, that's pretty good description. (laughs) He said, Nick, that's a clinical definition of addiction. And I remember I, I sat back in my chair like he'd sucker punched me because I was a pastor. And this I, is the first I, time it came together. I for truly you. loved the Lord with my whole, I mean, as, as much as I knew how to love him with my whole heart. And the idea that I could simultaneously be that and be an addict was as foreign to me as, you know, the German language would be if I tried to speak that. Like that language was so bizarre. But when I allowed that to sink in, 
the openness of maybe this is why I can't just stop it on my own um, and gave me the willingness to go down and meet with Ted and Diane Roberts. And we got to go together, which I think was so important that, that from the get-go they worked with us as a couple um, so we could deal with her, my wife's pain and sense of betrayal and the lack of trust and then also the behaviors in my life. Um, and, and we met with Ted and Ian Roberts and started to go through the counseling process. And probably the most significant thing they required of us was to be in a group, um, which I also did not want to do because I already had Saturday night services and elder meetings and small group and who needs one more nightly commitment a week. But uh, Dr. Ted said to me, if you don't do this, you won't change. Wow. Because he saw the central role community has to play in recovery. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I went to a group. Um, I didn't like it at first, but um, I found about eight or ten weeks in as we're going every week that one night as I was driving up, I'll, I'll just tell this one part of the story and then Michelle can kind of share hers. Uh, I was driving up to my group and I realized I'd been looking forward to it all week. I thought, this is so bizarre. I'm going to a place where people know the very worst things about me. I've told them things I've never told anybody else and I can't wait to get there. Hmm. What is going on? And again, it was one of those moments I heard the voice of the Lord just whisper to my soul. He said, Nick, it's the only place in your life you feel real. Hmm. And I realized that was it, that everywhere else I was so involved in that public me that I felt like if people knew they'd reject me. But in that group, they knew the private me like no one else ever did. And I was a part of that group. I was loved and accepted. And it was that group that really, along with the counseling, created such transformation where I knew I didn't have to posture or pretend anymore for love. Um, And when you experience that from other people, that's where I think I most deeply experienced the love of God. Yeah. That I'd been a pastor for 10 years, and I knew um, knowledge-wise, head-wise, all about the love of God. I could preach about it, but I don't know that I'd ever really experienced it because of that voice of shame that said people would reject you. When I experienced the love from those other men, that's where the love of God became real. And so from then, marriage and ministry became ministering out of the love of God rather than ministering in a hope that I might achieve the love of God. And that was a night and day change for me. So, Well, and that's the common phrase about being known. And that is the Christian life, that God loves you even though he knows you. Mm -hmm. And I think it's hard for us to believe that he truly knows us. We try to hide those places thinking that the creator doesn't know us. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of idiotic. Or we know he knows. We just think he has a very disapproving opinion of most Correct. of Correct. Even worse, <laughs> he's got the club. All right, Michelle, so your, your best so, day. <laughs> my best day. Well, that was one of them. When Pure Desire came and they were up there telling about this program, I was bawling. My eyes were like biggest saucers, like, this is it. Lord has answered my prayer today. Like, <laughs> this is it. Hope. This is what's going to save our, my marriage. And then I look over and he looks over at me and I'm just, you know, crying and to hear him not like not realize that he was going to be all in. <laughs> right. It's still kind of like surprising. Like, why wouldn't you be running up there and like, pick me? Um, that was a big, important day. And then um, meeting with Ted and Diane was wonderful. Um, I didn't want to go to a women's group, though. I had little kids at home. and You were both busy. I was thinking, <laughs> It's so funny to hear you guys both talk about like that. Why do I need a group? This is his problem, yeah. you know? But then going through, it's called Betrayal and Beyond, women's groups, and seeing all the other women there, all Christian women whose husbands struggle with this, or some husbands have left, but they're there working on, you know, their stuff, and to hear all their stories and all our stories are so different, but it all, we all feel the same pain. The, mm. We all feel the similar same reality, same cloth, but different stitch. Yeah. yeah. It was just like, whoa. And just to see all of us feel so 
like not enough. And I think that's just the way that Satan gets to us is like, you're not enough. Yeah. Um, You know, it's so impressive the, the, the way you highlight community and the importance of being vulnerable in a group where you can be real. I mean, that came through loud and clear the last few minutes and how few people actually experience that today in, in modern mm-hmm. uh, community. I mean, it's just yeah. so fast. Everybody's busy. How are you? I'm great. How are yeah. you? And the nature of sexual sin, it isolates us. And yeah. so when we try to fix it in isolation, that doesn't work. And we want to yeah. be better and not have anyone know about it. But the pathway to being better is having other people know about it and be part of that journey with us. Yeah. Talk to the uh, length of time to get counseling, to work Mm -hmm. on these things intentionally. Uh, What was that period of time like? How long was it with counseling and help? Yeah, initially the what I would kind of call the intense change process was about a year long of the counseling and being in groups. Um, but the healing continues. You know, the second time of going through the group material where I got to lead it in my church and help other men, I was still learning so much about myself mm. because really that first year in some ways is like triage where we're stopping That's the bleeding true. and the pain and figuring out how to arrest the behavior. You know, the behavior in my life actually changed very quickly, but the underlying issues those things don't change overnight. And so it was, a, it was a full two to three years of working through performance and shame and guilt that, um, that occurred. And that's what we really try to encourage people to see is this change isn't something you can do in a five-week study or read a good book mm-hmm. and you'll be okay. Um, it's funny to say that as the author of a book, but, um, <laughs> yeah, really. but to really take the long view to see if these are issues that have developed in my life over years and maybe decades, it may take a year or two of intentional work to un- unravel what's gone oh, on. Yeah, I mean, and, and I it, think that's pretty fast paced. Yeah, and it'll take the wife about two to five years to rebuild that trust. And yeah, boy, that's that's encouraging and discouraging. Yeah. But yeah. It's and I had true. to actually go through book one twice because the first time I was pretty numb. Like I yeah. just wasn't. I didn't have much feeling. I think that's how I coped with our struggle. Right. Is I just numbed out to it all. Well, that's a really powerful reminder that Michelle was talking about, the healing process, kind of this journey that we're on can take up to two to five years. I mean, that's a good perspective. That's the right sort of expectation. Yeah. And so often we want to rush our way through this healing process, but you don't want to miss out on the growth and the gifts that come through the pain. So I just encourage those listening to recognize two to five years seems like a really, really long time. That doesn't mean that there aren't going to be good times during that two to five years. Lots of victories. Yeah. And And so it's recognizing two to five years. Yes, that's long, but we're together and we're going to do this together and we're going to support each other through this journey. I also like how Nick was talking about the deeper issues. So pornography is sort of the tip of the iceberg. Mm-hmm. There's a whole lot going down. Matthew 15:19 says for out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality. In other words, things like pornography really come from these deeper heart issues. Aaron, as you're working with your counseling clients, how do you help them really begin to identify those deeper issues that are below the surface, really driving things Mm -hmm. like pornography? Mm -hmm. Well, it's important to look back at when did this start? 
so many of the clients I've worked with, this started when they were young, you know, eight, nine, 10, they're young. And so in many ways, this stunts their emotional growth because they begin numbing out and turning towards pornography yeah, to feel it something. Your brain. It changes the brain. Lots and lots of research out there on that. But it's recognizing, okay, I've got to figure out what were the emotions? What was going on in my life at that point? Was this something that I was bored and I just happened to come across this? Well, then I continued to choose to view it for years and years and never told anybody. What did that result in? You know, is there shame and fear of being known, fear of being inadequate or worthless? You know, and then there's a fear of being vulnerable and authentic and really showing up. So it's looking at that. Maybe there's past sexual abuse, past painful memories. You know, there was stress within the home. What was it? that led you to this place. And so it's just understanding it with curiosity. It's being curious about what has gone on and what's going on today as a result of it. How has this impacted me? How has this impacted my marriage? And I know for me, a big part of the growth and the healing was spending time with a counselor to really unpack, to Aaron, your point, that porn is a symptom. It's an acting out behavior. There were other things going on. As I've shared, you know, for me at one level, exhaustion, feeling tired became a trigger for me, but also the fact that as a very young teenager being exposed to pornography, that's when that began to happen for me. So being able to go back with a counselor and really work through that made such a big difference. You know, someone wrote, and I love this quote, that porn meets a hungry soul with a terrible lie promising to provide fulfillment. Mm. And more than anything that I've learned, that's exactly right, that pornography can't meet that deep longing in the soul, in the heart. And so to get clarity on that can make such a big difference for not only my own personal healing, but also for the marriage. And, you know, the reality is if you don't figure this out, you're going to simply pick up some other unrighteous coping mechanism to soothe yourself, whether that's drugs or food or exercise, shopping. We'll continue to do something to cope with whatever's going on down deep. So please know that Focus on the Family, we're here to help you to begin to understand those things. We're not going to shame you. Our counselors on staff are available to talk about whatever you might be going through. The number to get in touch with one of our counselors is 1-800-A-FAMILY. Again, that's one 800 a family. And at our website, focusonthefamily.com slash NPM, which stands for No Porn Marriage, you're going to find lots of great resources. One of those is our video series, Discovering God's Freedom from Pornography, that includes more of what you've heard today from Nick and Michelle Stumbo. To view this free series, visit focusonthefamily.com slash NPM. Next time, we'll be discussing God's amazing gift of sex and marriage. This has been Dr. Greg Smalley, and for my wife Erin and everyone here at Focus on the Family, thank you for joining us.